Welcome. You are listening to the History of Religion podcast. I am J.A. Graham, and this is episode 18 of the History of Christianity series titled The Calm Before the Storm. Last time we analyzed how the church was forming in structure and culture during the 3rd century. Today we will look at the forces propelling the Christian movement into the 4th century. The main force that is shaping the Christian movement is external and is the Roman Empire. However, there are Christians in other parts of the world outside of the empire, most notably in Asia Minor. Christianity went as far west as Spain by 300, but it had not penetrated east as far unless one accepts the Indian claim of the disciple Thomas making it there. However, there is some evidence of Christianity going east, particularly in Armenia. Armenia was Northeast Asia Minor and was not part of the Roman Empire. It was considered too much work to conquer for too little reward. The population was sparse and lived in mountainous terrain filled with tribes fighting one another. For all intents and purposes, it was its own kingdom. The cultural influence was from modern-day Iran era, but the people there had come to an agreement with the Romans to act or be a client state of sorts. Rome was happy to keep out of the business of Armenia and take its money. It is not clear when Christianity arrived in Armenia, but it was probably early. Christianity was helped in its spread to the east by the Jews who fled after the destruction of the temple. Christians fled along with them, and the presence of Judaism gave an inlet to many Christians in new cities. The traditional story of Christianity arriving in Armenia, though, is a bit different. It is set during the 3rd century, and it is about an Armenian named Gregory who was born in 257. He was raised a devout Christian and married a Christian woman named Miriam, who was a daughter of a Christian Armenian prince in Cappadocia. Even though they had children together, eventually they would split in order for Gregory to take up the monastic life. When this occurred, Gregory went back to Armenia from Cappadocia. When he arrived, it was found out that he was the son of the enemy of the king of Armenia, Trinities III. Gregory was imprisoned for 12 years in a pit. However, Trinities III went completely insane in the 290s when he was betrayed by the Roman Emperor Diocletian, who invaded large amounts of Armenia. Gregory was called on in 297 to help heal Trinities of his insanity. Gregory either was able to cure Trinities of his insanity or exploit it. Either way, in 301, Gregory baptized Trinities. Afterward, Trinities decreed the conversion of all of Armenia to Christianity. Gregory was given the authority to begin the work of converting the entire kingdom. Two princes from India are often credited with founding much of Armenia. So there were two large Hindu temples in the kingdom. It is said that Gregory authorized an attack on both of these temples and had them destroyed, along with slaughtering the inhabitants and the priests. There were then mass baptisms in the two main rivers of Armenia, the Upper Euphrates and the Arax rivers. Gregory became the patron saint and head of the Armenian Apostolic Church, which will last until the present day. Armenia was the first kingdom to adopt Christianity. Armenian Christianity will be its own and remain its own strand and type of Christianity for its entire existence. There were other major Christian developments as well, though. Gregory has already alluded to events occurring in nearby Syria. 
which for the Romans included modern Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, eastern Turkey, and northern Iraq. This was the region where Christianity was born and had the most time to spread into, and that it did. The Romans had always had trouble controlling the region, as the Jewish revolts revealed, but Christianity had no problems taking roots in there, it seems. The city of Dora Europas was destroyed by Sassanians in 256. Because it was so unimportant, it was completely abandoned until it was discovered by archaeologists in the modern era. There they have found the world's oldest known surviving synagogue and church. Evidence of the diaspora that occurred after the destruction of the temple and the spread of the religions that went with that diaspora. The church there had been converted from a house courtyard, which further confirms the developments of Christianity. The church there had separate spaces for baptized Christians and those undergoing catechumen. Also, it had a special space for baptism. And what is interesting is that it had no altar or special place for the Eucharist. Furthermore, the artwork found in the church is different from modern church artwork. It depicts Jesus as a good shepherd. The early church focused on the life of Christ and showing him during his life on earth, as the later church will focus on Christ's death and will often depict him on the cross or resurrected. Near the town of Dora Europas are the remains of a small kingdom that allowed Christianity to flourish until it was destroyed by the Romans in the 240s. It was called Osrohian, and the capital was Edessa. There are some interesting conspiracy theories surrounding this kingdom, and we will get to those in a later episode. We have already heard from influential Christians from this area, such as Tatian, who wrote the Diatessaron, or the harmonization of the four canonical Gospels. Copies of the Diatessaron were found in Dora Europis, actually. So the church was alive and well in this area from a very early period, and the Syrian region will be a powerhouse for Christianity until the Muslims show up. What the church was most famous for in this region, though, was its music. A collection of hymns called the Odes of Solomon have survived, although a bit edited. They show evidence of a unique theological feature of Syriac Christianity. It is that the Holy Spirit is referred to as a she or a female. All of the hymns from the first few centuries come down from a Syrian theologian in the 4th century named Ephraim. The Christians in Syria were in sort of a Wild West situation until the Sassanian Empire arose in the 220s. The first leader of the empire just so happened to be the grandson of a Zoroastrian priest. Zoroastrianism is one of the world's oldest religions. It probably influenced Gnosticism, but we have already noted that it had some influence on Manichaeanism. Zoroastrianism held to dual cosmology and worshipped an uncreated being of wisdom. So yeah, it sounds a bit familiar. It has roots going back to the second millennia BC, but really came into its own in the 5th century in modern-day Iran. It was an influential Eastern religion and gained control of the Syrian region in the 200s. Zoroastrians paid reverence to fire and made animal sacrifices, so they saw divinity in all of reality. This made the asceticism of Christianity and Manichaeanism very unappealing to the Zoroastrians. They began to persecute both of them when they gained power through the first restored Shah of the Sassanian Empire, 
The Shahs of the Empire continued their persecution of the Christians in the 3rd century. There will be major developments for the Christians in Syria whenever Rome adopts the major religion in the next century. Yet with all these persecutions occurring, it leads us to the man of the hour for the end of the 3rd century. His name was Diocletian, and he was the Roman Emperor from 284 to 305. The Empire was struggling to maintain itself. The 3rd century is often referred to as the crisis of the 3rd century. Starting in 235, there were many short-lived emperors who did not help bring stability to the empire. In 286, the center of empire shifted from Rome to Milan, which began Rome's slow fade into merely being a showpiece for the empire. Barbarian invasions from the Goths and Vandals brought further disunity the large trading network began to collapse as well, as the military was stretched thin and the barbarian attacks threatened the very security of the empire. The reaction was to increase the size of the military, which meant increasing its spending. This meant that the empire began to produce more coins, which of course led to inflation and further problems. All of this landed on the shoulders of Diocletian when he became emperor in 284. He came to the throne by being a skilled military leader and beating out his competition to the throne. Diocletian began reforms to change the trajectory of the empire. His reforms worked for the military, but not so much for the economy. An important reform was he installed two emperors who co-ruled. Then there were two junior emperors. The setup was a tetrarchy, and it was supposed to help secession of power go more easily. A bit of forewarning, it doesn't go so well. The Christian movement had taken a breather after the reign of Valerian, ended in 260. Some scholars say that the number of Christians grew from 1.1 million in 250 to 6 million in 300. Needless to say, that is a lot of growth. Christians at the time are noted as being relaxed and lazy during this period of growth, as we have seen. Division began to form in the church. Diocletian saw himself as the savior of Rome and sought to restore it to its former glory. This meant restoring the ancient religion of Rome. He saw himself as a type of Jupiter. It all began in 299 during a religious celebration when animals were cut up and the pagan priests looked at their entrails to tell the future. The Christians who were there made signs of the cross and impeded the pagan priests from telling the future. This made Diocletian pretty upset. Diocletian forced everyone in the area to make sacrifices and then the entire military. So the seeds of suspicion against the Christians were present in Diocletian then. In 301, he received a letter from the proconsul of Africa, where they were concerned about Manichaeans spreading, who were a sect of Christianity. Diocletian decreed that the Manichaeans were to be burned alive along with their books, so the persecutions began in 301. He ramped it up in 302 by making an imperial policy on the suggestion of Galerius, one of the Tetrarchs. Galerius hated Christians, both for their threat to the empire and because his mother hated them because they wouldn't eat food that had been sacrificed or offered to the gods. All of this put Diocletian in a familiar situation for us. How to get rid of the Christians. Diocletian didn't want to just kill them all because he knew the Christians would seek out death and it would be a bloodbath. Galerius wanted to just kill them, but Diocletian knew better. So in 303, he issued the edict against the Christians. It was to proceed without bloodshed, but that did not happen. The edict was to destroy all Christian writings and churches. 
worship was forbidden, and Christians weren't allowed to appear in courts. Former slaves who were Christians could be re-enslaved, and titles and offices of Christians were stripped. Diocletian and Galerius went personally to watch the first church be burned in Nicomedia, modern-day Turkey. They couldn't really burn it down because it risked burning the entire town down, so they just chopped it up with axes and hammers. Even though it was supposed to be bloodless, according to Diocletian, the judges had the authority to condemn to death, and many had grudges against the Christians, so blood began to be spilt. In 303, there was a fire in the imperial palace, and as we saw with Nero, the Christians were blamed again. Diocletian lost it, and for the next eight years, the empire attempted to, ex to exterminate the Christians in what is considered one of the worst persecutions to have ever occurred. They would burn families and everyone together alive. Diocletian gave three more edicts, some forcing all of the bishops in prison, overcrowding them, so he decided to let the criminals out to make space for the bishops and clergy, others to force people to sacrifice, and in 305, he was forced to resign by Galerius. From here, the story leads us to Constantine, so we will stop here for now. We are at the end of the Diocletian persecution, but next time we will clean up some loose ends from the second half of the third century. So I hope to see you then here on the History of Religion podcast.